My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Hello, hello, and welcome to the post credit pod. You guys may notice I am not Eric Italiano. Our fearless host and producer is very busy today. He's still here. He's going to chime in every now and then with, I'm sure, a hilarious joke and an odd pearl of wisdom. But because he's got so much going on, it is me, Brandon Katz, former host and current halfway <laughs> halfway house host, as Eric has dubbed me. I am here joined by Cade Onder, obviously going to jump into the nitty gritty details of episode five, which aired last Friday instead of Sunday to avoid competing head to head with the Super Bowl. I think we're going to have a lot to say with that. But first, sticking with the Super Bowl, there was a slew of TV and movie trailers Arguably none as big as The Flash. Now, we had previously had a teaser for this. Obviously, this movie has been marred in, first of all, development hell for the better part of, what, seven, eight years now? And obviously now uh, Ezra Miller, the star controversy due to all of their legal troubles and and legal transgressions over the last 12 months. So the fate of this movie was really up in the air. We heard a lot of different whispers behind the scenes of potential quality. Just coming right out and saying it, this trailer was unbelievable to me. I found it to be one of the most exciting superhero movie trailers, really in in spite of what I kind of wanted to feel. Kate, how did you feel about the Flash trailer? It looks really good. Uh, I I didn't think it would look bad. I was just worried about uh you know all the stuff around it but i think every there, there's been no point along the way aside from like the development hell has been in but actual sense like they started filming the movie like oh the movie sucks or something like that other than like some pieces being moved in and out because of changes to the dc universe and stuff but it sounds like the entire time like everyone's like oh it's the best one this is the dark knight which we've heard before but like uh <laughs> regardless it still looks very good what i was most taken aback by was like it has a style like it has a look like it looks like a movie and maybe that that sounds like such a low bar (laughs) like I shouldn't be praising a movie for having a style and a visual look but um when you look at other superhero movies you know even Shazam I would say kind of like has just kind of like not really impressed me on a stylistic level but but this movie like that shot where their their feet hit each other and they I'm like, that's fucking sick. That's inventive. And the part where little uh, Barry Allen comes running out of the house and turns from day to night and like it's one seamless shot. So let me just point out one thing that I think is key to what you just said. There's a lot of talk about the fact that the film is called The Flash and there are two Batman in it. Yeah. You just name check two Flash scenes as the first things that stick out in your mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like uh, people are hammering on to oh Batman, Batman, Batman. I'm like the stuff that excites me about this. Like as much as I love Batman, and I love Batman way more than the Flash as a character. Uh, the Flash stuff stuck out as the most inventive stuff and the most exciting stuff. I obviously, my boy Ben Affleck, he's back. <laughs> I'm here for it. So and that shot like that of him with the like grappling hook and he's like being pulled by something on his feet fucking rips ass so everything about this looks cool and not and not the fart way no like just just it's it's sick as fuck and we got generals i had put out a tweet just on like the blue suit i had never thought that that could work Mm -hmm. and it looks fucking incredible and i've never been gladder to be wrong i i i'm pretty sure they're gonna do 
the blue suit for the new DC stuff. I think, mm. I think if this is received well, they'll be like, all right, why not? You know, people forget the filmmaker, Andy Muschietti, who did do the it movies, but you go mm. back to something like mama that has a very distinct visual language, particularly yep. as a horror film, which can also also often, excuse me, be bogged down in, in darkness and really muddled grays. You know, it's part of the genre, but I feel like he breathes a sense of life into the horror genre with that. I think both the eight movies look good. And I think the second one, which is, you know, universally regarded as worse, it's not really visual. It's more a story that kind of spins out of, of itself. Yeah. This looks, and I know this is such an oft-repeated cliche, but it very much looks like a live-action comic book. There mm-hmm. is a lot of slowed-down, detailed ridiculousness that totally works in this sense of this trailer. You know, when Supergirl is just blasting a guy in the face in slow-motion Superman style, like, yeah, that's really cool. That's what I want to see. That's the pow, thwack, bam, but done in a slightly more grounded way. Yeah, I think you know we can criticize dc for its lack of coherence over the years and whatnot and letting people just come in and do whatever the fuck they want without any regards to how that may affect everything else but they've always kind of allowed directors to put their own style even like outside the actual universe like todd phillips and do joker and having a real sense of uh, flavor in there and snyder obviously very stylistic uh, this this almost feels like Snyder adjacent. And I think that's just hard to deny from the story. Like it's yeah. basically Man of Steel in another universe. What if Superman was not here, uh, but Man of Steel happened? Um, which is a ridiculously cool story. I don't think we really knew much about the story aside from Flashpoint, but like the idea of like, oh, Flash fucked up so bad that the inciting incident of the <laughs> entire DC universe is like, now possibly going to be literally as bad as they had expected it to be without Superman. Such a funny way to put it. He fucked up so bad. They're back <laughs> to square one. Yeah. I mean, really it's, it's just crazy. And we'll come back to this when we talk about the actual flashpoint story uh, sure. line a bit, but I do agree. One thing I liked about this trailer too. I feel like we saw a lot without seemingly giving away everything i mean we see barry's family we see both barry's we see can we catch a a glimpse of love interest we see uh you know a couple batman do you think though that there are going to be some elevated cameos and or appearances of characters that we in this film that we didn't see in the trailer you know is there going to be some surprise batman are we going to get any green lanterns anything that you think is a little bit of what we were expecting for a multiverse of madness so I'm going to chime in here and spoiler warning for the flash. If you don't want to, so this is not a plot detail. It's not my fault, but it is sort of the consequence of the marketing machine out there. And Kate and B, if you don't want to hear this, I don't know, go on mute or something. <laughs> a, a, a Funko sheet leaked that shows mm. that there is going to be another villain. Now I'm not going to say what that villain is for the sake of, um someone we know like from another movie or no no, okay no so outside of that like i think that that might be the one and i just think that that makes sense from like a storytelling standpoint like back in like the dceu's fuckboy days when they were like let's throw doomsday in the trailer yeah 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 (laughs) i think they're just wisely not doing that this good because that was a fucking mistake right huge mistake so i think that that's like a it narratively makes sense even without the Funko fuck up yeah. that there would be some sort of third act villain because you think 
just from the way that the trailer is laid out. And I think that that's why it's so successful. And that's something I want to ask y'all is why is this trailer connecting? Is it the Batman's of it all? Is it just that well-made? Um, what was I just saying? Third act reveal, pop Funko yes, pops. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So the trailer pretty much lays out how it's all, all going down. He's going to go to Ben. He's going to be like, hey, Ben, I've got this bad idea. Ben's going to be <laughs> like, dude, you shouldn't do that. Ezra's going to be like, great advice. I'm doing Fuck it. you. <laughs> and then he's going to show up in the Batman world. The Batman world is going to be the one that Zod attacks. That doesn't take... There is no way that the third act is going to be a repeat of Zod tearing apart yeah, the city. I don't think you know so what either. I mean? So just from a logical standpoint, there was always going to be a third villain. Now, you guys want to know what it is? or I think I... Is it another Flash? Go ahead. So I, I, I'm, so I do <laughs> think that there might be another cameo or two. Do I think that Bale is going to show up? Which is something that we've been hearing. No. Do I think that Clooney could show up? Possibly. I've actually seen rumors that they're going to narratively solve the Ezra Miller problem by stranding him in the Clooney verse. As part of a recast, you mean? <laughs> which is like, which are, is are like you saying as part of a recast? Yes. Yes. And that, and that, like Wally West will be the DCU's Batman because Barry Allen chooses to stay in the Keaton or the Clooneyverse with his mom, um, which is just like the that makes more the, sense. You said he gets stranded in the Clooneyverse, like he's just like fucking George Clooney's keeping him hostage. It's no, I just picture it as like as like narrative yeah, jail. No. Yeah, that I, makes I sense. hope so that it's not that that's not the case. Not not the Ezra stuff, but. Clooney coming back, I think only narrative works if they're making a joke about how bad the Clooney Batman was. And that's a very Marvel thing to do. That's not a bad thing. I just would like, I don't need all of this self-aware meta self-referential humor from this. I could have, I'd rather have more organic character specific humor that carries forward in future movies. As we get to know them more, those familiar jokes actually land even harder, much like Joey loves sandwiches and friends. Like the longer that show goes, the funnier it gets because you know, and are so familiar with it. So I just hope that they're not taking the piss out of it for in that way. Yeah, uh, I didn't love the I'm Batman line. I know it's you kind of have to do it, but I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. It's it's so overdone at this point. We get it. Michael Keaton says it in like real life at like university speeches. I'm like, Michael, yeah, he doesn't even care about Batman. That's the funniest part. He's like, I, I don't watch Batman movies. I only like my. He's own. the Harrison Ford of the Batman. <laughs> he really is. Which he I really love. is. Yeah, but if you could get away, if you could get away with saying that in real life, would That's, you not? You're right. You're right. I wouldn't yeah. be able to resist <laughs> yeah. either. But yeah, uh, it seems like the movie has has found a, a good tone that like balances its like intensity uh, with like the comic bookiness of it all without being like, oh, this is so weird, right? Like it feels like it knows what it needs to be, and I I appreciate that because uh, that's a really hard thing to balance, especially so nowadays. just on like the comic book comic bookiness of it. This is not a direct one for one flashpoint. Yeah adaptation but they are taking from the way that they appear to be repowering up this other barry with like a lightning mm -hmm. strike to his motivation for trying to undo his mom's death to the alternate batman granted in in the comic books it's thomas wayne bruce's father and not a bruce very wayne, drunk and I, angry thomas wayne mm -hmm. yeah, yeah so angry and, and that is a version of batman <laughs> that i i don't like i mm -hmm. consider it to be 
too far. So I think that that, I mean, I guess that's the point, yeah. but that is why I've never wanted to see a Tom, like all those cast Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Thomas. Wayne. I don't give a fuck about Thomas Wayne unless he's being used in that context, which he's right. not here. Um, but the flashpoint story, despite how big it is and spoiler for a 10 plus year old iconic comic book story, it is huge. It is way bigger than this film is ever going to try to wrap its arms around. It involves the Atlanteans and the Amazonians and Clark Kent and reverse flash and Batman's. But what I will say is despite its grandeur, it is a remarkably emotional film. The last panel is a letter from Thomas Wade Mm -hmm. to Bruce Wade in another universe saying, love always your father, Thomas, which is just like, that is comic book storytelling at the highest level, right? When you could draw emotion, that is one of the only comic book stories that has ever made me cry out of like timeline fuckery. Mm -hmm. That's when you're throwing high heat. And there is in that story, despite it being flashpoint DC, whether it be comic books or film or TV knows where they're, bread is made and that's batman so yeah. while you may have complaints about him inheriting a flash story or o- overtaking it is consistent with the comic book that it's based on <laughs> yeah um and who's ever going to complain about more batman especially especially because i still feel like ezra uh or the flash is still like the heart of the movie they show that the the struggle with his parents is very much present in this movie is it is the driving factor behind what he's doing which is again kind of more or less always been the case um so i love that um and i will be interested to see if they have any unexpected cameos because it sounds like you know a couple months ago we learned that maybe not unexpected but we learned that there were supposed to be some that they weren't revealing ahead of time it sounds like they got cut so we'll see if those do make their place back in or what, because um, I would be so surprised if this is all they have, just because you have a character that can go across space and time in crazy ways. And it'd be weird if it was just like, we're only going to show you the guys that we're keeping around right now, or that are <laughs> the main characters. You know, we can't show you Henry Cavill. Like, why not? Why not? Um but as part of that, and to kind of bridge the gap between what you guys are both saying, I really, really, really like how Supergirl is taking Superman's right. place from the Flashpoint comic. Because again, you know, spoiler for 10-year-old comic, in Flashpoint, Barry travels to a universe in which basically the government uh, intercepted baby Clark Kent, kept him in a lead room yeah. with a red, you know, a red sun his, his whole life, and basically tortured him. And he was broken out, busted out, hated humanity, but basically essentially through Barry showing him kindness and acceptance and a different path, he helps save the day. He helps do the right thing. And putting Supergirl in that mold is such a cool introduction for this character we really haven't seen on the big screen in live action because it's such an emotional and interesting and scarily realistic uh, example of how we might treat a potential alien, a potential sentient life that we felt threatened by. And so I think it just launches her in such a cool place. And I'm hoping if this does connect, that they can continue this storyline with her, with Sasha Cali moving forward. Obviously, it it differentiates a bit from the Supergirl comic. James Gunn is adapting to a Supergirl film, but either way, I just think it's really cool. And finally, to tie a bow on this this Flash conversation. Wait, quick. Do you think it's going to be her in the Supergirl film? 
I, I think it, it is wholly contingent on how well the Flash does and, and whether or not she's received. I bet they have not made that decision yet, particularly since we know the, the Supergirl film isn't supposed to come till 2027, I believe, as yeah. part of chapter one. Yeah. And this so is right worth noting her first ever film role. Wow. And yeah. like, since this is in another universe, you can just say it's the same actress, just the new universe version. They don't have to carry sure. on the storyline. They can do whatever the fuck they want. So Great it's possible. Point. So Ezra Miller as the Flash. Obviously, Ezra Miller has committed a, a lot of very questionable acts in the last year, but whether or not you, you like it or hate it, this movie is coming and it stars Ezra Miller. So let's just focus on that fact. When Ezra Miller was introduced as the Flash in Justice League, I or BVS, but really Justice League, I thought the Superman fight scene was hilarious and everything else I could take or leave in terms of their performance. Go, revisiting uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, a little bit better. Still really like that Superman scene, but again, more take or leave their performance. It doesn't really feel definitive. There's not a huge imprint. I'm not super tied to this version of this character. From a purely acting standpoint, how do you think Ezra Miller looks as the Flash in this solo movie based on the trailer? I just want to chime in with the context about the Ezra of it all. John Boy Boyega, who is in the business, all right, sent out a tweet saying that Flash trailer looks amazing. All right, DC, like kind of hell yeah. And then someone replied to him telling him what, Ezra has done the last year or two and he was like oh damn this is the first <laughs> I've I've heard of it and this is like a major Star Wars starring movie star yeah so I think that the only people of the population who are aware of his struggles are the ones who are going to see this film anyway it's, it's the same thing with the J.K. Rowling controversy I think J.K. Rowling's views are, are terrible but the general audience isn't aware and doesn't care Seems to be correct. Yeah. What was your What was your question, Brandon? I'm sorry. But the original Are we question back is in on yeah. him because I feel like uh, you know B has always been down on him. I don't have enough context of the Flash as a character to speak on what he should or should not be. But like I've got to say, in a trailer alone, his delivery of very comic bookian lines, such as like the "You're you are" or the that's my face or the and where Barry are like extremely well delivered mm -hmm. comic book lines that undercut what should be a repetitiveness and a familiarity and a corniness and make them accessible and enjoyable jokes. Yeah. So, and you know, he's a good, they are a good looking dude. I'm like, wow. Like the long hair, the short hair, the shitty suit, the nice suit. Like he's got the look, he's got the emotion when he's talking about his mother, you really feel it. So I'm like, look, I'm someone who's fucked up a ton, not as much as they have. <laughs> but enough and i feel like look like if this movie is a banger and if they have really cleaned up their shit i and if james gunn thinks that he's worth keeping around i am like i guess my point is i think he's gonna be good enough that people are gonna be like fuck should we keep them yeah it's a interesting thing to weigh i i think ezra miller showed more of a deeper performance than in the previous iterations of the flash that they've done. Like I really didn't like them in the, in the justice league. I thought kind of annoying. And I, I, maybe that's just the way they wrote that character in that movie. And there's been such an, enough times between then and all these different writers and directors and visions 
that they may have like a slightly revised take on the the flash now that I'm I'm interested in seeing. Um I, I think if it's less like ooh, wacky 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 and more like I'm someone who's has control of the universe at my hands, at my legs, I should say. And <laughs> I am I am feeling all these intense personal pains and I can maybe change that, but at the cost of really fucking a lot of stuff up. That's a really cool concept. And if you can lean into that and show the emotional side, which there's a lot of cool moments in the trailer of like Ezra Miller really like being thrown to the ringer. And I'm, I'm excited to see that as opposed to making the joke of the flash. I mean, the scene in justice league where the bad guys win and the flash has to be like, all right, I have a chance to prevent this and has to go into the speed force is like all time great comic book moment. And that's one of the moments where I was like, there's a chance this could work in, in a flash movie. So if it's good, I'm excited. And I hope that they stay true to their word about cleaning up their act. And, and then, you know, we can go from there, but I am, I am seeing the redemption arc here. <laughs> a lot of subplots in play. We got a, a little bit of a runway till the flash comes out and potential serious implications for DC moving forward. Switching gears for a second, though, let's talk about the MCU. Kevin Feige recently had a pretty extensive interview with Entertainment Weekly. One of the things he said is that from from now on, moving forward, there's going to be less volume of Disney Plus Marvel shows. So they're going to be more spaced out and fewer of them. And also, they're going to be embracing more episode of the week formats for certain characters and certain shows moving forward. Cade, Eric, I love the first part of that sentence. I think that's a great way to uh, uh, you know manage quality control, not stretch yourself too thin. It's something my, us and a million other Marvel fans have been talking about throughout Phase 4. Don't like the second part of it. Now, episode of the week formats are extremely popular from a commercial uh, standpoint. I completely get it. But I've said on the show a million times, I really, really prefer serialized storytelling instead of, you know, case of the week, monster of the week, challenge of the week. So how do we all feel about both elements of this plan? My one note on this is seize poker face once. Poker oh, face has done really well, but thing, Ryan right? Johnson but is, like, a, is a rare talent. Yeah, you know, I just think it is a degenerative <laughs> quality diluting move. It is easier to tell week-to-week stories than it is to tell one overarching one. The whole existence of the MCU is that it's an overarching narrative. Yeah. So, Kev, come on, man. I uh, think that they have not proven that they're capable of telling uh, week-to-week serialized storytelling for the most part. And they name-checked your boy, Kate, specifically. Which one? I didn't hear it. Daredevil? Yeah, he's like, that's why we can't wait to experiment with him. I'm like, dude, what? (laughs) That's a concerning one, then. Uh, That that did have the higher episode count, too, remember, which we were all scratching our heads at. That kind of now makes a bit more sense. That's. I wouldn't be surprised if that leads to, like, there's an overarching story since there's so many fucking episodes, but, like, the general thing is going to be Daredevil solving a case or whatever uh, or doing whatever kind of thing, kind of like She-Hulk, where, like, he's going to court, He's doing his thing and and whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of thing, but there's still an overarching thing. Kind of like there wasn't She-Hulk, right? It was week to week. You could kind of just jump in and out, but she had an ongoing arc uh, leading up to a, a big conclusion. But um, 
overall, I'm like, they haven't really put out anything that I'm like over the moon about with the serialized storytelling. So I don't give a shit. I would, I'm, I'm open to seeing them try something new and seeing if it works. Um, I I'm will still a say, huge fan of WandaVision and Loki, but you know, I think Loki season two yeah. will be serialized. So I still think their highs in the shows have been pretty high. Just obviously I agree that there's been some inconsistencies. Yeah. And like there, they have all these projects coming up, like the Agatha show. Like yeah. who the fuck was asking for that? I know we all like <laughs> WandaVision, but like who the fuck needs that? The only reason I could ever think of that is like, because it sets up something like related to some, um, object in secret wars or whatever they're like oh it comes from witches and now it's important to saving the universe i'm like but classic mcguffin fucking give a shit like (laughs) (laughs) all right well that wraps up our superhero corner of the day we're gonna take a quick break and then jump right into the last of us episode five another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Cade, Eric, The Last of Us Episode 5. Kind of crazy that we're more than halfway done with this show already. I I believe nine episodes total. Uh, let's jump into it. This episode starts Henry and Sam, who we saw at the end of last week's episode. They make a tentative truce with Joel and Ellie. Joel, initially, he wants to part ways, but Henry proposes they escape the city together using underground tunnel routes that only Henry knows. Joel hesitantly agrees. Personally, one thing I really like about good post-apocalyptic stories is the introduction of new characters is often a really organic way to world build without hyper dumping exposition. Like, oh, the, the jumpers and the skippers are in zone three fighting the, the hydras. <laughs> like it, it's usually a more organic way because they reveal tidbits about how they've survived, how they've lived and what they've seen in a very emotional way when done well. And I think right off the bat, this is setting it up pretty good because there's that standoff. You can tell he cares about his brother and you're just like, damn, this is tense. Yeah, there's a, a really wonderful thing that they've kind of changed from the games here. And I think I talked a little bit about last week of uh, the enemies in the game are just called the hunters and they're just a very general like bad guy group. They don't really have a motivation other than they're kind of just bad guys who want to rob you. Um, I mean, which, the motivation is surviving. The yeah, surviving. Right? Like, right. Yeah. There's no deeper meaning. It's it's enough that you're like, okay, yeah, yeah we got to kill these guys. Um, I'm on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the show, they're like, we should probably give a reason for Henry and Sam to be like on the run and stuff beyond that. And so they, the couple of changes they made is Henry is right. deaf in, in yeah. the show. Do you want me to wait for this or? No, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna get to the reason for uh, Henry and everyone okay. being on the on the run next. But you can you can go through it just because uh, it's it's coming up, and I think it is important. Sure. And I really want I really like the game to book changes that you can give the insight on. Yeah. So uh, the changes they made here are the resistance is completely new, Kathleen is completely new, and all of the reasons they're doing everything is completely new. Um, and Henry, or I'm sorry, Sam is deaf in the show, not in the game. He talks a lot. He's older in the, uh, TV show as well, or in the game. Uh, they changed it in the show so that someone could look up to Ellie and give her kind of like a parental role in some way. 
which I thought was really good. Um, and fucking home run, Cade. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I think it fucking it, home run analysis. No, I didn't even you. think of that. Fucking home run, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Comicbook.com. <laughs> and then uh, Henry and Sam are on the run because Henry uh, sold out Kathleen's brother, who's leader of the resistance to the Fedra, so that he could get medicine for Sam, who has leukemia, which is brand new, um, yeah. which I think he- just helps over like serve the greater mirror to Joel and Ellie, right? Just like you would do anything for your child, right? That's what I did. Yeah. And the actor playing Sam is deaf in real life too, which I just mm-hmm. think is a really cool touch. And I thought it was cool how the creators were talking about how uh, all the kids picked up sign language on set a lot quicker than all the adults. And that is actually <laughs> what they what they tell you when, when you have a deaf child is because our language synapses in our brain are already very set when we're older. Sure. And I just thought that was a really interesting kind of... Uh, um, twist on it. Uh, like you mentioned, Henry does confess to Joel that he was responsible for the death of Kathleen's brother. He turned him in to Fedra in exchange for medication for Sam's leukemia. And you can see the absolute guilt and remorse, but necessity that weighs on him because he says yeah. he's a great man. He looked up to him. He, he loved him, but he's going to do anything for Sam. Uh, after escaping through the tunnels, the group is attacked by a sniper from an upper story window. Joel manages to sneak up behind him and kills him in, in a way where he just so tried so hard not to let it reach that fatal stage. Uh, but he also finds out that he was radioing Kathleen who arrives with her militia. Again, a, just a, a really effective way of building tension on a gradual incline. Uh, you could tell, I think Joel before has been ruthless and he continues to be ruthless in certain ways. But I do think in my opinion, his desire to try to avoid killing this guy yeah. is partially due to to the opening of his heart that is happening. You know, he's had a, a calcified soul for, for 20 years now, and finally it's beginning to thaw because he's making human connections. And I th- it, it reminded me in the moment, and I meant to tweet it and I forgot, it reminds me of the thing that Tom Hanks says in Saving Private Ryan, that mm. every man he kills in this war makes him feel a little bit farther away from home. And that's why he Mm. lets a German POW go when all of his soldiers want to kill him. And so I got that vibe from, from that scene. What did you guys think? Yeah, that's not in the game either. Uh, The, the whole sniper sequence is you go through the house and kill this guy, but like, there's no real thought. It's just another guy you got to fucking kill. Um, And then the scale at which the chaos erupts, we'll get to that, is not in the game at all. I mean, they went crazy in the show, which I really admired. But um, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, like, it's clear that the people in this world just are so broken. And, like, that guy, that old guy has been through a lot. And it kind of almost seems like a death by cop situation where you're like, fuck it, right? Like, I got it. What am I doing here anyways? He's probably made a lot of mistakes. He's probably kind of like Joel too, where he's just like, I'm just going through the motions at this point. And it's a terrible thing, but you're totally right. Joel is clearly changing. I mean, he offers uh, to let, you know, Henry and Sam come on their journey uh, and stuff, which he would otherwise just not do because he doesn't trust anyone and he doesn't want the baggage and have to protect anyone. But yeah, it's clearly, this is a guy who's being reformed. And can you bring up a good point that the people in this world have been through a lot? Who would you rather be? Or, or not really that. Who do you think it's harder on? The people who remember society and the world before it collapsed and have had to suffer through this absolute 
a, a de-evolution of society and the collapse of everything new, you knew, or the children born into this stark, cruel, really, really, really limited world that have never had access to something better. That's that's always been the beauty of The Last of Us is that you get both those characters. You know, you get yeah. to see Ellie and Joel, and and Joel is like again, I've, I've talked about this before, but like he takes it all for granted because he lived it all. And in the game, there's actually a really great moment between Joel and Henry where. Henry was too young. I mean, he's like in his 20s, maybe 30s, you know, at best. Um, but Joel was telling about how him and Tommy took a Harley motorcycle ride uh, across the country when before the apocalypse. And Henry's like, dude, that's so fucking cool. Like, I've always wanted a motorcycle. He's like, vroom, vroom, vroom. he's like, he's so excited by it. And he's he's telling Ellie, he's like, oh, you don't understand when you're on that thing. And she's like, how the hell would you know? He's like, I don't. But this guy does. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it's just like these people, they long for that uh, that life that they never got, that they were robbed of. But yeah. then it also reminds Joel, people like Joel, what they are, what they have lost and what they took for granted and maybe the fight to get that back. It's really, really poignant and, and well done uh, from here. Kathleen has Henry in her sights, but before she can shoot, a just avalanche of infected emerge from underground, including a large bloater that beheads Perry and a child clicker that kills and infects Kathleen. Uh, After the group escapes to a motel, Sam shows Ellie that he was unfortunately bitten on the leg. Ellie uh, uh, puts her blood on him to try to, to save him because she's, you know, just been told that she's the cure, but without any context, you know, it's this beautiful yet tragic example of how naive she is. Uh, Sam, so Sam is infected. And in the morning he does attack Ellie. Sadly, the blood didn't do anything. Henry is forced to kill him, but then shoots himself. Joel and Ellie bury them and set off on foot heading West. And I think I have two larger points that I actually jotted down before this, because one criticism I've seen of this episode and now a sort of macro view of The Last of Us is they keep introducing these kind of side characters that are then killed off and maybe distract from the main plot. I can understand where people are coming from. I can. I, I can sort of validate that and say, you know what, if this isn't for you, I get it. But I think it's so important because it actually so well feeds into Joel and Ellie's journey thematically. Like you said, like the creator said, it, Henry and Sam are a mirror version of Joel and Ellie. And when they end tragically, it's the first time that I think Joel consciously realized, really, truly admits to himself, A, I'm truly beginning to care for Ellie in a profound way, Mm -hmm. not just as a mission. And B, this can happen to her and repeat my trauma again. So I Mm -hmm. think the fact that that hammers home that those realizations to Joel and in fact, our main character's journey are really important. And then zooming out again, just for all of episode five, to me, it really felt like it wasn't about not, it was, it was about not becoming the monsters, you know, Melanie suffered immense trauma or sorry, Kathleen (laughs) suffered immense trauma under Fedra but then essentially became a carbon copy of the oppressors when she Mm -hmm. gained power. And I felt like this episode is about finding that sliver of humanity to present yourself from going full monster. You know, Joel hated Henry at first for being a rat, but he was able to find the grace within himself because he ended up understanding and, and vocalized that to him. And I think it's like this really beautiful balance of 
focused growth and overarching episode to episode growth. And I think they've pulled it off really damn well. It's so funny you bring up that thing about Kathleen because I saw a tweet today about uh, like villains that are actually like good motives but like they're written by a liberal so they they get like tor- like they they ruin it and make them monsters at the end and i'm like i mean like yeah their intentions as the resistance were good to overthrow fedra they just got way too carried away and just started doing the exact same thing it's yeah, i was like what are you talking about french revolution <laughs> vibes yeah exactly um but the whole whole thing uh is it, it's funny to see people criticizing the whole side story stuff with the side characters. I mean, uh, because like, I think some people are like, I don't understand how this relates to the plot. What's what's going on. And like the people who've played the game and I'm not trying to get on a high horse here, but they're like, this is beating you over the fucking head with the themes. It is not subtle enough. It is so <laughs> apparent of what they're trying to do with something. Like, I don't, I just don't understand what Bill and Frank's purpose was in this story. It's like, God damn, they fucking wrote it out for you in a goddamn letter. What do you mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it'll all make sense in the end. If you have those criticisms, I think by the end of this show, you will get it and understand why everyone fills the place that they do. And it looks like next week we're getting back to Tommy uh, based on the little mm. preview they have. And um, I think that that's smart, right? Because I think just from a strictly structural standpoint, even though that they've been hitting home runs literally week by week, right? Like I am convincing myself with every passing show that I think that was the best one yet because they're adding new elements to what they've already established each time. I said this l- last week, the Ellie and Joel relationship is only going to get better. And that's only going to increase the dramatization of the show. But, and maybe this is my, like, um, inside baseball knowledge of how these things work, but eventually audiences are going to become used to the pattern of being introduced to somebody only for kill, only for them to die at the end. Now, while the thematic point of all of those deaths may still ring true, it's now like a meme, right? Like, I've seen memes, like, the last of us introducing somebody just to brutally kill, you know what I mean? And that is not what, that's not where you want to be because predictability is like the death of shows. So mm-hmm. while I understand that this is operating at an incredible, incredible level and having people like Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett and Melanie Linsky fill in the margins and, and play these parts are helping I think that, and especially because it's a finite story, and Cade, maybe you could tell us like what percentage of the last of a story we're through at this point. I think it's smart for them to get back to the sort of the main narrative because I don't want to be introduced to somebody and be thinking within the first two minutes, well, how are they going to die this week? Sure. I, that You don't want to let your audiences fall into a pattern of predictability, and that's, I think, the risk that they run. And I think that that is why episodic television at large has sort of gone the way of the past. Mm -hmm. I will say um, that I think that formula is now behind us for the rest of the story. I'm not saying nobody dies from here on out, but I don't think you'll be introduced to a new character every week and be like, all right, they're here and just to die. Like, I, I think there are characters that will die but not necessarily in the formula that we've been seeing, if that makes any sense at all. So and including The Last of Us Part Two, 
if you had to put a 10%, oh, wow. 30%, what percentage of the story do you Jesus. think to wear through now? When you put the second game in there. Oh, all right. <laughs> all, right, all, right. Can, all right. All right. Fine. Um, then fine. What about just part one then? I would say like 70%. Oh, oh wow. so the, and season, I guess that makes I'm sense for nine, five, I mean, nine episodes. Episodes, I'm, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, cause there's also, so this is, I'm talking about the main story of the first game and then maybe there's a whole episode i as far as i understand dedicated to the left behind dlc which is like a prequel to the last of us centered around uh ellie and kind of her little story uh, before she meets joel so cool. um yeah i'd say about about 70 percent um okay wow. yeah and quickly before we <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other can of worms. And just quickly before we move on, Cade, you mentioned that the scope and scale of the action in this episode does yeah. vary from the game. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought, in terms of pushing forward a mix of practical and practical prosthetic effects and CGI, like holy crap, this was really, really well done from a technical standpoint. Yeah, um, I I don't think at any point at least not in the first game, a little bit, maybe at the start of the second game, but the first game, you don't see anything quite like this, like a horde like this. I mean, it, this is crazy. Check off zombie pit. When, yeah. When I saw yeah. It earlier. And I hadn't been, wa- I haven't been watching the little previews. Like I, I just see kind of what gets thrown around on Twitter after the fact. Uh, but the, all I knew is the zombies would obviously make an appearance. I knew just the bloater would make an appearance. I didn't know it was going to be like this. And so, seeing them all come out i was like this is amazing this is yeah. fucking awesome because in the game it's just like joel gets up in the house he gets on the sniper and there's like five guys who kind of come and chase after them that they have to kill and then a few infected it's pretty easy like it's nothing crazy um but then this is like oh you understand that this is a fucked up situation both with just the resistance and the infected then you throw them together it's a nightmare um and you really get to see why this country fell apart when the infected came about because and we don't ever see an infected child in the games by the way so that little fuck that's cool that climbs in the truck is the scariest thing i've ever seen now wait i'm confused is that supposed to be an offspring of an infected or a child that got attacked i would imagine a child yeah i just assumed the latter yeah and and probably not during single infected kid in the whole game no, I, I think it's probably because they don't want you killing children in a video game just because that's that's, that's something that just happens in a lot of games. Like, but, there are but shows are like, fuck it. They're like, yeah, fuck it. There's no, We're doing it live. You can't teabag a kid in a TV show, you know, be all weird <laughs> about it. So it's a little bit easier to get away with. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I think the sense of chaos. Well, and... you, well, you could, but they just don't do it. <laughs> they, yeah, they're they're generally like, it's a bad Good, idea. They should. It's a bad idea. <laughs> I, I really thought that scene in the sense of chaos and like fatal entropy that it creates because any well-trained battalion of troops it doesn't matter when a horde of zombies suddenly scatters into your main center of of operation whatever you know formation you've set up to corner whatever enemy whatever quarry you have it doesn't matter your lines are going to break down and there really is no way to run there is no strategy you know and i thought that that was really effective at showing just how deadly and inescapable of a force the horde is yes um i'll be curious to see if they bring back the uh infected as a larger threat 
in the back half of the series. Because in the game, I feel like from here on out, as a little little bit of a tease, I suppose the the humans are much more of the threat than, than before. Uh, so I I will be surprised if they uh, make any sort of larger infected push in the back yeah. half of the season. I mean, any genre show ever, it, it, it really sums up to, it's not about the alien slash superhero yeah. slash zombies. It's about the people. Yeah. Yeah. Always. That's, <laughs> that's it. All right, guys, we are going to move on now to Eric's interview with Reed Scott. He plays Dan Egan in Veep. He's Dr. Dan in the Venom movies. He's also been in a million other things that I, I've always been like, oh, it's that guy. He's good. So I'm excited for this one. Okay, folks, today I am joined by Reed Scott, an actor you know from projects such as Beep, My Boys, the Venom franchise, and his new film, Who Invited Charlie, which released on February 3rd. What's going on, Reed? How are you, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so glad we also have a solid amount of time to chat. These are my favorites, so we can really get in deep. I want to start with your new film, Who Invited Charlie. It stars you, Adam Pally, and Jordana Brewster, and it falls under the um, unwanted guest friend genre, which the ones that pop into my head are you, me, and Dupree. I also think one of the best performances in this genre is um, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly. Yeah. Which of these is your favorite types of films, and which friend would you be in real life and why? (laughs) Uh, I love these movies, man. I came up on, you know, like Planes, Trains, Automobiles, John Candy and Steve Martin, you know, it's a classic. Uh, Uncle Buck, which is obviously a huge inspiration for the film. Um, Great Outdoors. Great Outdoors might be my favorite because Dan Aykroyd in Great Outdoors is just so unhinged and so off the hook funny that that movie meant so much to me. He reminded me of my uncle growing up too. So I think I really like that. No offense to my uncle Richard, who's probably watching this. Uncle uh, Dick, sorry. Yeah, sorry, Uncle Dick. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and who would I be? I don't know. I'm definitely not the larger than life type, which is kind of why I identified with the Phil character in our movie. But yeah, more the, uh, the Steve Martin character in Planes, Trains, Automobiles. I just love that character. And yeah. uh, I think Adam Pally in our movie just just nailed it. I mean, I think the world has been waiting. Everyone knows how funny he is, but to see the sort of heart that he can put to the character too, he just crushed it. Yeah, those scenes with with your son are, are are real good. I was not really familiar with his work beforehand, but yeah, he's he's good in those. He's great. Um, so I so it is um so it is literally part of the gig. But I'm curious what it's like to play these sort of unabashed assholes and how you leave that at work. Is there like a process where you wake up, you know, you make your kids food, you take them to school and then, all right, you're in jerk mode. Like, how does that sort of work for you? Yeah, honestly, that's that's kind of been it. it it's I would be lying if I said it wasn't a hell of a lot of fun to go to work and like play a prick. It's fun. You know, it is. It's like you get to say all the things no one gets to say, do all the things no one gets to do. And then people clap. <laughs> and that, that shit's pretty cool. Uh, that being said, I also, 
I don't know. I, I, I do get asked this from time to time. I think the reason why I sort of carved out this little niche of playing like, you know, the privileged white prick is that I've seen so many of these guys in real life and I actually do have utter disdain for them. So I've tried to make it, you know, very, very carefully craft these characters where it's like, I want to highlight the things about them that I absolutely hate so that the audience can hate them as well. But I want them to like them enough that you're really sort of like, oh man, my, now my feeling about this guy is really twisted inside out. Like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like you want to sort of root for these guys a little bit in, and hope that, you know, maybe someday he won't be such a jerk. But at the same time, you know, that, that's what he represents. That, that, that's where that comedy comes from for those particular projects. I, 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 I guess I'm lucky that I'm, I'm, I'm playing an asshole. And you, can... uh, you and I are from the same neck of the woods, so I know the exact type of guy that you mean. And I want to talk. You... About, um, I, I live in Hoboken now, but I've yeah. lived in the North Jersey, New York area my my whole life. And um, so I'm gonna ask you about that Jets line in a bit. <laughs> um, but I do want to go to sort of the earnest side of this film. This th this was a pretty earnest look at finding connection during trying times which i mean like is something that we can literally all relate to in general but having just experienced this unique example what what's the key to sort of weaving that into a comedy without coming across as preachy that's a great question man it was something we were very conscious of you know like first of all to, to, to make any movie that even touches on the pandemic is you know, it's, it's, it's sensitive, you know, you never know how people are going to react to it. So we really wanted to use the pandemic as like, look, it's the catalyst for the story. It's why these characters are all thrust together, but we didn't want to harp on it. We didn't want to go back. You know, there, there was comedy to be mined out of that initial wave of paranoia that we all had, like, you know, wearing masks, how close can you get all that kind of stuff. But we didn't want to push an agenda or make it seem like our characters fell on either side of the politic politicized spectrum. And I think you guys nailed that. I, I didn't get yeah. any, and not so much preachy in terms of wear your mask, but, but just right. sort of preachy in terms of here's what happens when we all stick together, you know, totally. just to, we, didn't yeah. wanna, we didn't want to do that either. Like we, we wanted to draw real characters with real problems mm. and show how some of these real problems can really get solved when we open ourselves up to, you know, some solutions that might not occur to us in the first place. But also we didn't want it to be like saccharine and, you know, everyone gets along in the end and let's just have like one big collective hug. Like we wanted to give it a happy ending and a nice sort of soft landing, but we wanted it to be real. I mean, like this family at the end of it, we still have a lot of problems to sort through. We just have the one thing that I think got us all through the pandemic is now we have hope that yeah. we can solve these problems. But we didn't, Plus, we, we didn't wrap up our issues by the end of the movie. Yeah, and, and what helps you guys is that this is a genre that existed before COVID, right? Like the sort of, oh, I'm stuck with this weird friend was already kind of a thing. So you guys yeah. just used a very realistic framework to tell that story. So I think yeah. that, that that's a huge help in that sense. So you do touch on something that I want to ask, and I enjoyed it. So when COVID first broke out I live on my own now but I live with my two friends at at the time and I'm like a hypochondriac in general so I was the one wearing gloves to the store and, they, and I'd ask them do, do you guys want gloves and they fucking laughed at me and of course in hindsight I do find 
find it funny and silly. That's why these jokes work. But how do you go about balancing telling jokes without marginalizing the very real fears that people had at the time? When you're sort of constructing these, the scene where you have to press the button or you know you can't stand too close to each other so you put the tape down on the floor how did you craft these jokes without quote-unquote pissing people off too much i guess i think honestly we 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 drew from our own experiences you know and i know for myself like when covid first hit um i was like man i'm fucking built for this <laughs> like i kind of liked it i liked being holed up in my house with my family you know i'm a bit of a homebody i was yeah. like just fixing everything in the house. You know, we made the bread, we made cookies every day. You know, I'm a bit, I wouldn't say I'm a survivalist, but I think, you know, coming from the Northeast, you know, I like gear. So I have a lot of shit. And I was like, great, you know, get it, get out the gas stoves and all this kind of stuff. But I remember, you know, I have two little kids. So I remember having to be careful. It's like, like I wasn't particularly scared. I was concerned and I tried to, you know, take it seriously, but I wasn't really scared at first. Maybe I should have been, I don't know. But with, with my, in regards to my kids, I was like, I need to be careful. So it was a lot of things that were like, you know, I went out and we live in California. So we have an earthquake kit. I opened up the earthquake kit and right on top were KN95 masks and gloves. And I was like, well, I mean, when else are we going to fucking use these things? So like, right, right, right. So whenever we were coming up with these jokes, you know, it, it, it almost didn't even occur to us that we would, you know, be marginalizing because we weren't making fun. Right. Uh, the concern because we all had the same concerns it's only in retrospect that we're able to sort of laugh at it now and be like oh my god remember you know when like you didn't have a mask what did you do when you didn't have a mask you pulled your shirt up we were wearing bandanas on our face yeah remember one time it was like we read some i was on some blog it's like all right here's how you take a pair of like fresh cotton undies and make it into <laughs> a mask you know it's like we all did that shit and looking back it is a little funny now now you know, how COVID affected people, you know, who right. were like, that's not funny. So we don't make any joke about that. Right. You know, but we were also, you know, improvising, man. We were all floundering out there. And that's, yeah. a, you have to find comedy. In that. Yeah. So the last thing that I want to touch on for this film is a specific line. I burst out laughing. I really did. There <laughs> is a character who people will probably remember as the director from, um, entourage yeah um Billy Walsh. yeah so you're kind of you you and him are going back and forth and you go what you don't make bad bad choices you have season tickets to the fucking jets ray and i mean i'm a jets fan my my dad's from queens it's in it's in my blood the jets have pushed me to a point of like sporting nirvana where now their terribleness actually brings me joy like yeah. that's how far deep i've gone where did that line come from? It, do you relate to it as a New York sports guy? I do. It. I do. I, uh, I mean, I, I'm a Giants fan. I'm a Giants fan. I'm, you know, Giants, Yankees, Knicks, Rangers. Okay. Uh, and my buddy, Nick Scott, who wrote the movie is just like me. He's a diehard Giants fan, but we have tons of friends who are Jets fans and there's nothing more fun for Giants fans than to give our Jets buddies <laughs> you know, an appropriate amount of shit. It's and a good so line. That, that's all it was. It was just sort of like, here's a nice, fun little dig that our friends are going to get. Yeah. And, and Reese Coiro, who's fucking hilarious in everything he does, you know, it, it was so fun to sort of battle back. Because we all know that guy. 
You know, yeah. we also know like, like the we also know like the 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 Giants prick who lives on the Upper East Side and like you know thinks Eli was actually a really good quarterback and didn't get lucky <laughs> with that receiving core, which we all know he did. We all know that I could have won that Super Bowl with that receiving core. So sorry, Eli. But uh, yeah, it was just a fun little inside joke to our buddies in New York. Eli, man, careful. He's a funny dude. He'll come for your no. job next. <laughs> <laughs> I think Eli is awesome. I think he's, he's great. great. Yeah. But I, I, I'm a hater because we went through some lean years as a, a you know, mm. I'm a huge sports guy too. So I'll talk yeah. about sports for the next half hour. But you um, know, well, good, good luck paying Jones. What I hear is th- 35 to 40 mil per year. I hope Definitely it's- worth it. I hope so. Oh God, I hope so. I mean, the Giants have a have a terrible track record of overspending where we shouldn't. And then what do you do with that guy? So yeah. look, I think Jones had a great season. He definitely got to keep him. You got to keep him. You got to yeah. keep him. There's there, yeah. there's it's the same issue. Like as a Yankees fan, we went through this with Aaron Judge. You know, right. it's like he had a phenomenal season. Yeah. I hope he lives up to this incredible contract that he. That yeah. He all right, let's swing to Veep. One of the funniest things I've seen in my entire life. I, I I watched it for the first time actually during 2020, and it was one of those shows that literally, like, as soon as I I got up, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to watch Veep that day. Um, you know, it was obviously a topic during the Trump years, but I think what's magic about this show is it remains increasingly relevant and prescient. I'm finding, regardless of who's in charge. So how is the show how is the show changing in your eyes as the years go by? That's a man, it's really been interesting. It was something that was very purposefully done uh in regards to the the creators to never really define what side of the aisle our group of despicable people really fell. Like if you really want to read between the lines, you could probably guess and you'd probably be right but we tried to keep it as ambiguous as possible for that exact reason because we wanted the show to be able to live on and it's an indictment of everyone that works in politics not one side versus the other but one thing that we saw which was really interesting you know uh because the show sort of caught on obviously with the political community we got invited to a lot of events and we got to go to the press correspondence dinner you know um i got to meet Joe Biden backstage when he was vice president at an event, um, meeting all kinds of senators and congressmen and women. It was really remarkable. And from both sides of the aisle. And consistently, everyone we met, if they were Democrat, they would always say, God, we love what you guys are doing to the Republicans on your show. Then if you met a Republican, they said like, oh, the way you guys are trashing the Democrats is just so perfect. And it was like, this is why it's working, is that it doesn't really come down on one side or the other. So it's sort of allows the audience to fill in the blank with whatever their political leanings are and show just what utter buffoons and look there's a lot of good people in politics too but they're they're human and that was it it's like you know the the human foibles that exist in this office comedy but the stakes are so high because it's american politics so something i try try to do is i try to put myself and fans in your shoes right so i'm sure you've talked about veep a thousands of thousands of times but but i'm curious when you shut your eyes and you think about your time on that show where's the first place your your brain goes is it shooting a specific scene a season a moment a joke i can tell you exactly where it is there's one moment i mean there's so many moments but there's one in particular that i will just never forget it was season one uh we shot the first four seasons of the show in baltimore oh okay. uh, because it was close to dc cheaper 
Yeah, cheaper, big tax break. But it was also, you know, our creators, a lot of people might not know this. Our creators were all British, mm. you know, sort of based on a British show uh, called In the Loop, or sorry, In the Thick of It. And um, so that was sort of halfway for everybody. So we're all on location and we're, we're shooting at a, a, a high school and there was a scene where Julia's character thinks she might be pregnant for a second. Uh-huh. And so she and Anna Klumsky dip into the little girl's room and they, you know, she pees in a cup and she takes the test and she comes out of the hall. She's holding her cup of urine and we find out that someone in the press has called her repugnant. And she turns to me with this, this cup of urine. She goes like, why am I repugnant? <laughs> and the look on Julia's face was like, because she was so earnest. She's such an incredible actress. It was so real. I couldn't keep it together. I think I ruined every take because I would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And then she would laugh and then Tony would laugh. And when Tony laughs, everybody laughs. And it just, it was just one of the most fun days I've ever had on set, just goofing around with these heavy hitters of comedy. And it was, it was one of the best feelings I've ever had. It was really great. Julia, I am of the thought she's the funniest person alive. She's probably the funniest person alive. Yeah, I genuinely mean that. Her, so... I mean, and kind of the same thing. I like to ask broad things. When you think about working with her, where does your your mind go? Besides the cup of piss. (laughs) Uh, It was a masterclass. You know, that's really what it was. That's the way I treated it early on. I was pretty intimidated. I think we were all intimidated. I was going to ask that too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's a not just, But not just because she's playing such a bitch, just because of like who, like her as a (laughs) professional. Oh, her comedic pedigree, you know, like, you know, she's the second cast of SNL. Right. It was her and Eddie Murphy. And now they're in a movie together, which is, you know, people's is fucking hilarious. But um, she's been doing what she does so well for so long. You know, everyone knows her from Seinfeld, but I I, I knew her from, from, you know, the old SNL days before that. So... And, you know, Seinfeld just like vaulted her into sort of like, you know, legendary status. I think she's better in Veep. I think so, too. I think it was I do. The role, yeah, it was the role she was always meant to play. Yeah. She was attached when I read the script and I was just like, I'll do anything I can just to be next to her and learn from her. And then we showed up day one. And as we're sort of getting to know everyone, you know, it, it slowly kind of circulated through the rest of the cast. It's like, wow, we are all very intimidated by Julia. But she's so down to earth she's such like a jeans and t-shirt kind of gal like roll up the sleeves like let's get to work let's make this fun let's connect so that we're all vibing together that we became friends within like you know hours and then it was how does our band play this particular kind of jazz together who takes the lead in this scene you know who's keeping the who's keeping the beat for us and she's very generous too she would hand it off she's like this is your joke you know, yeah. And the writers were the same. Like by the end, it was so collaborative and there was so much improvisation that you forgot who came up with one bit. Sometimes Julia would come up with a bit. She'd be like, oh, you know what Dan should do? Try this. Like, oh, that's great. And I'd say, hey, you know what? If you could sort of give it to me like this, she'd be like, okay, fantastic. It was a band working together to make the best possible music we could. And it was really, really fun. That does kind of touch on something that I'm going to ask about in a, in a bit if we have time, because the insults are so personal. I imagine that it had to be a collective process, you know? Um, what do you think is the funniest line you ever got to say? And what was the meanest insult you ever received? 
Oh man, I don't even remember what I got to say, but my favorite of all time was probably Jolly Green Jizz Face. <laughs> it's just one of the greatest. It's a classic. Like all, all children should be taught beyond like third, fourth grade. You know, if you really want to get someone, you call him Jolly Green Jizz Face. And then that um, was one of my favorites. And then, what? oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And what, what was the second part? Oh, no, it was just the, the best line that you had and then the meanest oh. thing that you had got, gotten called. I think I really enjoyed coming up with like hepatitis J when I'm oh. like, they're, they're all directed at Jonah. Poor, well, that, poor I was man. just going to say, so what was the relationship with you and Tim Simons like off camera? Because the dynamic between Dan and Jonah is honestly one of the funniest things on TV that I could recall. Cause they are such, so diametric, diametrically opposed that anytime they're in the same space, it's only barbs. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I think, and we had so much fun doing that. Tim and I, we became great friends. Everybody did. Yeah. You know, our, my, my weekends, our time off, it was, you know, Matt Walsh and Tony Hale and Tim Simons and I hanging out, going to movies, you know, playing squash, drinking a little too much probably here and there. And then when Gary Cole came along, you know, he folded in the mix and Kevin Dunn folded in the mix and Sam Richardson folded in the mix. And it was, it was really fun. Really, really fun. Um, but we all knew what the joke was. At, at first, we were all sort of like kind of tiptoeing around these insults because rightfully so, they were very personal digs at the character, which is a lot of like appearance-based stuff mm -hmm. at first. And at first, you know, we'd, we'd try it in rehearsal and be like, you know, whatever Barbara was. And then, you, we, you know, they yell cut. And we'd immediately be like, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, you know that I don't feel that. It's this writer <laughs> over here made me say it. And everyone's got thick skin. We're like, yeah, it's just to make it funny. And Tim definitely bore the brunt of a lot of that stuff. But Tim is also one of the funniest guys you will ever meet. And he gets the joke. And that's what it was all about at the end of the day. So he, he like, you know, they yell cut and he'd be laughing harder than anybody. And he could give his, you know, he gave as good as he got. Dude, everybody, dude everybody. Tim, I think has the, has the best joke that I heard in the show. The one that sticks in my brain is towards the end. And sorry, kids out there, he goes, how am I doing? <laughs> I'm eating so much pussy. I'm sh shitting clit, son. And then the camera pulls back and he's in a classroom. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's insane. It's insane. And it was so fun to just watch that character just get dialed up over the seven seasons. <laughs> By the end, we were all just like the most despicable people on TV. It was yeah. Oh, man. So I now want to swing over to Venom. Yeah. You were in the, the legendary scene where Tom Hardy hopped into the lobster tank please walk me through your memories of shooting that scene both as an actor in the film and just as a pure observer watching hardy do whatever it was that he was doing <laughs> hardy's a beast tommy is an absolute beast and he i think venom was kind of the first time people really got to see it he's incredibly funny he's a very very funny guy his dad was a comedy writer mm. so it's like tom Tom gets the joke, you know, and he loves to play. He loves to play around. He'll spend most of the day playing around. You know, like you might get like one take because we spent the whole day just like sort of fucking around, which is really, really fun. And Michelle too. Michelle Williams is really, really funny. And she loved to play. That whole scene actually when we shot it was so much bigger. There was so, we worked out this massive sprawling physical comedy bit, which a lot of it's in there, but trust me when I tell you it, it was twice as long 
you know, there was, you know, the, the, the guy getting punched in the face and then me sort of resetting his nose and it just went on and on and on and on. And we had it perfectly choreographed. It was so, so much fun. Um, to the end where, you know, he jumps in the lobster tank, crunches on the lobster, um, and then I think jumps out at one point. Uh, he collapses to the ground. And what we had originally shot is I came down sort of like, like you know, hey, you okay, buddy? And Venom's arm sort of lashed out to sort of like flick Dr. Dan away. And they had me hooked up to this harness. I got to do the, my, the stunt myself. I was really excited about oh, that. Cool. And they yanked me. I think I flew like 60 feet in the air into a crash pad. And it was awesome. And we had so much fun. That might've been the most fun we had during the whole shoot. And then we got a note, which is, you know, studio notes give studio, you know, studio people right. give studio notes above my pay grade. They're like, it's too funny. What? It was like, it became too much of a comedy. Uh, and it's like, oh man, all right. And I, I still think that the audience really would have loved to see what we did. But that whole day was just great. And just, you know, playing with Michelle Williams and Tom Hardy and just, you know, clowning yeah. for eight hours. And everyone was so down to just try it. Like, what is it? Let's try it. Let's get messy. Let's get wet. Let's get dirty. And it was, it was a blast. It was an absolute and any uh, updates on the third one that you could share? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I know it's coming, I, but uh, I, I know nothing. I know no nothing. call, call yet. Your uh, phone's on though, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Then real quick, just before I wrap up here, I got to ask about your brief stint on Curb. Um, you know, you go from one legend to, to the next. Was this surreal filming that? I'm always curious about like career milestones and i got to imagine sharing scenes with larry david had to have been one. Oh, it was huge i how I was, did it feel to step onto a set with him and share scenes it, it was a dream i i've been waiting for that opportunity for so so long again you know since the seinfeld days and uh i'd gotten to know larry a little bit through julia obviously right. like they're really close friends and and uh you know larry did she put in the good word is I don't think it was so much that I think he, he had just, he, he admired the show. Um, you know, he, he and Julia are very, very close. Uh, um, David Mandel, who was one of the bigger writers on Seinfeld came over to show run our show for the last three seasons. Um, so again, we just had so many kind of circuitous connections. Uh, Larry presented us with our Emmy when we won the, the first year that, that Veep oh, won. Cool. So it's like, you know, he, he was a huge supporter of us all. When that came around, um, it just seemed like a natural fit. They just called me up one day. So like, hey, do you want to come play? And I was like, oh my God, like, uh, yeah. Uh, like, what time do you need me there? I'll be there. And then he told me, it's like, yeah, you're going to be playing this guy, Don Jr. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and I know, I know just what to do. This is going to be a lot of fun. And Larry, again, is so generous and so fun. And most of the day, on curb is like the script is very loose almost like bullet points yeah you know like they have an idea of what they want and then you spend a lot of the day rehearsing it and finding the funny on your own which is why it feels so real and so natural so again like you're sitting down and you're playing with larry david you know all day trying to figure out well we know what we want to say but how do we make it funny and if it's funny to us it'll be funny to everybody else and just all the stuff we came up with you know it was like it, it was an embarrassment of riches. I'm sure 90% of the stuff that we came up with, it didn't even make it into the cut. 
but they just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. Try this, try this, try this, try this, try this. And, you know, they, they, they sort of cherry pick the best parts, but Larry is so down to hear what you want to do. What do you think is funny? How do you want to try it? Very laid back set, very laid back set. And I think that's very conducive to comedy. You know, you can't put a stranglehold on comedy. It wants to sort of live and breathe and sort of, you know, be its own thing. And that's why that show is such a huge success. And then final housekeeping update before I let you go. Are you involved in season two of the after party at all? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I wish I was. It was a lot of fun. They're, they're yeah. sort of taking it in a whole new direction this time. Gotcha. A, a few of the characters sort of carry over, but it's a whole new storyline, um, which I can't wait to see because those guys are genius. Yeah. My boy, Sam Richardson. Oh, it's he's, like He's blowing up, man. He's blowing up. Honestly, I got to say, like, Julia... Watch out, because like <laughs> Sam might be the new funniest guy alive. Alive, yeah. yeah. So, wow. So, yeah, I, I'm excited. All right, Reed. Thank you so much for your time, and your career seems like a blast, and you seem like you are aware of that. So that is just <laughs> so much fun to see from a fan's point of view. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, man. Cheers, man, and good good luck to your Giants, huh? Yeah, yeah. Here we go. All right, guys, that was our show. Thanks again to the normal host, Eric Italiano, who you can find at Pro Bible and on Twitter at Eric Italiano. Uh, Cade Onder, who's at Comic Book. Cade, I'm sorry, I don't know your Twitter off the top of my head, so you want to give the people what, what they want? It's at Cade underscore Onder. Probably should have remembered that one. Now I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> and you can find me doing some cool stuff at Parrot Analytics covering the entertainment industry, and I'm at great underscore Catsby. And uh, what do we have on tap for next week, Eric? My name is Ant-Man. Quantumania. Breakdown. Ant-Man. And I've also got an interview with Cocaine Bear star O'Shea Jackson Jr. coming. We're talking. Awesome. uh, The titular Cocaine Bear, uh, (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi and Denethi. I heard Cocaine Bear was a real flake on set. Never rely on them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Tune in next week.